And it seems obvious, basically, that we've been afraid that AI was going to enslave humanity, but that looked kind of like, you know, the Terminator. In reality, we're getting closer and closer to that through our hands and in a very quiet way. The real problem is not that certain things are allowed to slip through the cracks. I think the real problem is that bad things are being constantly amplified because that's what keeps people on the site. That's what keeps people engaged. Thanks for joining me for the Crawford Media Podcast. My name is Hal Crawford. Today, I'm speaking to Jonah Sachs, a leading thinker in marketing and media and someone whose work I've admired for many years. Jonah wrote the book, Winning the Story Wars, which viewed the world as an arena where competing narratives fight for supremacy. The aim of the book was to convince corporations that ethical marketing was more effective, but the lessons go beyond marketing and into news media. My particular aim in speaking to Jonah was to get his take on what is happening to Facebook's story in the arena where it's getting beaten up. But I was also interested to see what he had to say about our current information ecosystem in general. I began by asking whether Jonah's thinking had changed since Winning the Story Wars came out in 2012. We're seeing studies now that misinformation travels twice to five times as fast on Twitter as, as truth. And algorithmically, you know, in the, in the survival of the fittest landscape of ideas, untruths that excite people's fear or their paranoia do tend to, to travel faster and better than you know, more complex, nuanced truths. So it is a slightly different landscape, of course, when someone is trying to create fake news than when they're trying to build a brand and, and sell a product. They, they, they may be two separate things. But the, the change that you're pointing to is a change that uh, I've been noticing and trying to work with over the last sort of 15 years, but also especially since I wrote the book, this... This unfortunate situation that I've seen in which when I began working on internet communications back in the late nineties, I and everybody else pretty much, I think that I knew saw the internet as this potentially liberating, uh, force in which everyone's going to have a platform. Everyone would have a chance to, to speak their minds. And the main problem seemed to be that corporate gatekeepers were kind of holding back important information. And once everyone was able to share whatever they wanted to say authenticity would bloom, democracy would bloom. Unfortunately, you know, we were totally wrong. I was really wrong about this, that the situation that we would face would be far worse in a sense once this, once the landscape was atomized and bad actors would have, you know, microphones and algorithms would select for those bad actors. We, we got into a sort of looking glass situation that's very hard, that was very hard to anticipate but now creates all kinds of new problems beyond the problems we were trying to confront back when, when the media, media was first democratized. So I'll say, yes, I, my chain, my thinking has somewhat changed, but there's a lot to say. There will always be bad actors creating bad information and there'll be al algorithms selecting for people's lowest impulses. There are still many things that can be done to correct for that. Unfortunately, those things are not being done right now and they can be done at the level of social media platforms and they can be done at the level of people demanding that the social media platforms make those policies. There's a lot to dig into on that, I think. Right. That we are, we are a new territory for sure. I, I just want to separate the layers that I want to talk to you about Facebook. So Facebook is is my focus today. It, it's sort of a, it, it's a meta story, really. It's a story about stories. 
Uh, and so at one level, I want to talk about the Facebook story and, and how that's gone wrong for Facebook as a company. But I also want to dig into that transmissibility of stories within the network. So where have they gone wrong and and how do they shake that if if they do? Yeah, I mean, I see Facebook as having fallen into a sort of similar position to, let's say, fossil fuel companies, right? So that they are sort of villainized seen as the source of problems known to be uh, profit maximizing at the expense of society pretty much broadly. And yet, you know, in the case of fossil fuel companies, most of us still have to stop and fill up our cars. And so we don't necessarily see, and there's not that much consumer sensitivity when a few of these organizations, a a few companies have a monopoly on the market, there's not that much choice that goes into it. So you could have a huge amount of anger and outrage and disdain ranging from, you know, total disdain to sort of general bad feeling about a brand, and it can still generate huge amounts of money. Facebook is even more of a monopoly than, you know, ExxonMobil or BP in that they have a complete lock-in, network lock-in between Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram so that people can basically think that the platform is uh, bad for society and at the same time uh, has no choice but to conduct their social lives and their business there. So I don't think Facebook sees a particular need for changing that story because people are so locked in, but the need that they do feel, I think, is to push back against regulation. So they have to have some basic sheen of respectability. And I think they are losing that, which, which is more and more becoming a threat actually to their operations, I, I would think. Is, is the essence of the problem there, the fact that it's so easy to game the, if you want to call it the human operating system? Uh, you know, when it when it comes to the transmission of stories, is that the base level problem? We have a situation in which human weaknesses are laid bare and, and exist. I think we should be really clear. And in any solution we, we seek, seek or any imagined future, we're not going to have a future without human weaknesses. And we're probably not going to have a future where there's been enough education to beat back all the heuristic biases and, you know, automatic reactions of our paleolithic minds, we're probably never going to get out of that situation. So the cause of the situation is that, yes, we are, we have weaknesses as people and we weren't designed for environments like the ones that we're living in. What's so unique about the situation that we're in is that the ability to exploit those weaknesses, it is evolving so quickly and in the non-human ways, because basically algorithms can find and dig dig deeper and deeper into these weaknesses and open up more and more of those weaknesses. And the more that they do so, the more those weaknesses get amplified in in individual minds, you know, so so the more you listen to conspiracy theories, the more prone you become to them. And, you know, the the algorithms can experiment essentially with with 10,000 conspiracy theories all at the same time. And that and that ability to do so is only increasing exponentially. So we're kind of in this game, my friend Tristan Harris, who, you know, is a, is a the voice for technological reform, says that every time you go on Facebook and you're trying to um, get what you want out of the platform and the platform is trying to get what it wants out of you, it's like you're firing up a supercomputer who's playing chess against you mm-hmm. and you don't know where you're playing chess. So I think the situation, we can focus on the human weakness, but the real thing is the, the way the algorithms are allowed to run um, out of the control of any democratic control or, or beyond human values is really the source of the problem. And it seems obvious basically that we've been afraid that AI was going to enslave humanity, but that looked kind of like, you know, the Terminator. In reality, we're getting closer and closer to that th- through our own hands and in a very quiet way that will make any kind of future problem solving impossible as we get more and more uh, 
enslaved to bad ideas, essentially, that are mm. being tested at the speed of speed of light. That that is fascinating, actually. That is, you know, the power of story can be turned against humanity because we're so susceptible to stories, right? Yeah, I think I think that that's true. And, you know, we, we certainly can look at history to all kinds of people who have weaponized stories, you know, propaganda that, that has done terrible things through storytelling. But I think we also, um, stories were presented and moved at a sort of speed in which we could kind of, we had some agency, I think, to think about the stories that we wanted to accept and we had a chance to fight back against them. And because influential stories used to be told at the scale of entire tribes or societies, we could sort of argue over them in a sense and, and craft them together. Now we're in this world, it, it appears, where people are locked into their own filter bubbles and consuming stories that like, you don't really know and I don't really know. When we look at people who are now, you know, storming the Capitol or taking, you know, believing QAnon and all this stuff, we actually don't, we hear about the stories they're consuming, but we're not consuming the same media that they are. And we don't have the same, we have no source of shared truth. And therefore, we can't even really contest these stories. And at some point, you could just imagine that people, that everyone has their own personal bank of propaganda that's being fed to them and, and, and customized for them to, you know, to manipulate them into almost any, any action that, you know, an advertiser wants them to take. Mm. And so, yeah, there's, I, I, and yet I do think that the platforms can do a lot more to control this. And this is not just about, well, how do we put more people on overseeing content and taking down bad things? That's, that's like the most simple thing that you're looking at. That's not the, you know, that's, that's what they talk about. That's, that's the most simple thing Well, people shouldn't be able to post you know, violent or vile images on Facebook per se. And we, we have to get better, but there's billions going up at all times. So how do we do that? The real problem is not that certain things are allowed to slip through the cracks. I think the real problem is that bad things are being constantly amplified, actively amplified, because that's what keeps people on the site. That's what keeps people engaged. We actually have to intentionally amplify things that teach people how to be better citizens to that give people not exactly what they're, you know, amygdala wants at any given moment, but content that society feels is, has, has some value. And I think that's doable. I just think that these, these technology giants have no interest in doing it until they're legislated. So you, you say that you think it's doable. So that, that was my follow-up question, which is, okay, everyone says regulation. Mark Zuckerberg himself says, you know, regulate us in these four prescribed ways, but how to regulate, what to regulate, how do we get in there and, and fiddle with the algorithm in, in ways that we can define in legislation? Yeah. So, you know, this is a very difficult question to, in, in the details because it's to some degree, like unless you're building the algorithms and even those who are building the algorithms, it's hard to understand what's really happening behind the scenes. And, you know, with machine learning, we don't really understand what's happening behind the scenes. Nobody does. But what, what I think about this, and, and I've kind of worked on a number of projects along these lines, is that at the highest level view, an algorithm is a piece of code or a program that is set to produce some sort of outcome. And the outcome right now has been decided by Mark Zuckerberg, basically, as maximized time on site for, you know, maximize advertising dollars, basically. Maximize the amount of engagement that people have with Facebook. Within certain constraints. Within certain, and the constraints are basically the kinds of constraints that protect 
you know, that he thinks is, is, is the constraints that, that stop the platform from being shut down more or less. I think that there was a time where people thought that someone with so much wealth and a young person with progressive ideals sort of also had a social conscience. I don't think that that's really playing out. So I think the constraints are the sort of bare minimum on growth, constraints on growth. I think what we might be in a situation now where people like you and me can't come up with the actual code uh, for how the algorithm should run, but that society itself or democracy itself should be setting the, the directives for the algorithm. So if we say right now, this, this piece of code is set to keep people in sight for the maximum amount of time. Well, what would it do? What would it figure out if the, um, if the code was set to maximize reported self-reported well-being? Or if the code was set to allow people to set an ideal amount of time that they wanted to iterate, engage and interact. Or what if the code was set to minimize tribalization and polarization, or the code was set to maximize the spread of stories that were agreed upon by a council of scientists on a certain issue. Mm-hmm. You know, Google just, you know, demonetized all climate denialism. So these things like, seem sort of impossible in a way, but I think that because, because you, you always say, well, who's to say what's good. And I think that if we believe in democracy, it's like democracy is to say what's good. And this is kind of radical because you have private corporations that I'm sort of suggesting be run by, you know, public councils essentially, but we may be getting to the stage of capitalism where you have these corporations that are so influential that if you don't have a sort of public control over their the inner workings of their brains, you're always going to get in sort of sociopathic results. Some of the some of the scenarios you describe there do make me scared, you know, because I, I could well imagine a, an algorithm that uh, minimised tribalism might flip the other way, you know, and maximise uniformity. There's a, quite a few thoughts that your uh, discussion there has raised with me. One is the role of the advertising model. Advertising always involves two groups, one, the audience, and, and two, the customer, the, the person who pays you. One element of Facebook's, you know, what? why do they want to maximise engagement so badly? And the answer is, well, to maximise advertising revenue. So say Facebook was a subscription business, these problems, they'd be mitigated, wouldn't they? You, you do see with digital subscription businesses a much better interaction between users and, and the people who create the software, right? Like Microsoft Word did not work or, you know, was constantly distracting you from getting your work done. People would quickly migrate to another a word processor. And, you know, Photoshop is not there to maximize the amount of time you spend on Photoshop. Photoshop is trying to be the most useful tool it can possibly be to get your work done. So I do think that we find that with subscription services, you often do get a better relationship. You look at more like consumer subscription services, something like Netflix, for instance, you know, you start getting to a spot where you're like, well, their, their motivation is to make it impossible for you to break up with them. So are you starting to get perverse effects where people are being, you know, pushed to watch as much TV as possible? Potentially, but it does not still create the kind of effects that we see with, with Facebook. So I do think that, you know, as, as is often said, like if product is free, then you're the product. That is really true. And we are struggling, I think, because these are, these are influence machines and advertisers' motivations are rarely, you know, your motivations. And so you have this kind of war between mm. yourself platform at all times. So I do think it's a really big problem. I mean, but at the same time that Facebook has become so ubiquitous and so necessary that there's real questions about like, can all Facebook users afford to pay anything, you know, can the 99 cents a month that would 
be required to keep the platform running, be affordable to, to every citizen of Facebook? And, and the answer is no. Would you, should you create like two classes of citizens on Facebook where some are paying and other getting a better experience? That becomes tricky too. Um, this, this has been solved in the past by creating public utilities and also not obvious, but you know, we, we don't tolerate society in which some people can get electricity and other people simply can't. Or if you want your electricity, you have to go through an advertiser. You know, people get running water, they get running water, they get electricity. And we might eventually get to a situation where we realize that certain parts of these platforms are more like public utilities than they are like private corporations. And we need to uh, provide them under a different model. Yeah, I think I think we're getting there. But as you say, it's unprecedented in that, you know, this is a global public utility. So... Yeah. That's, that's one thing. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the patterns I think we're seeing here is that uh, we have one thing, for example, you know, mainstream media with, a, with just a couple of voices and, and we wish for something else. And then it turns out that what we wished for is has a, a nightmarish aspect. And, uh, and I, I sort of feel the same way about social media. You know, one of the blessings that we have at the moment is is that we know where the power lies, you know, and yeah. the, the power lies with Mark Zuckerberg, mm. one company. Imagine if that was fragmented. It, there was no central uh, authority that we could go to to try and moderate that that yeah. content. Let me let me ask you another question, which is because I've been a, a news journalist all my life, I've observed that the way that journalists think, including myself, especially under deadline pressure, is in story templates. How mm. would you suggest? How would you suggest we break out of that? Yeah, well, this this potentially goes back to this is something that goes back to what I wrote in Story Wars and, and what the whole point of I think for me what the point of the book essentially was, which is that when we tell stories, implicitly what we're trying to do is get our audiences to 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 experience the story for themselves and to say to look at the characters and say, hey, that could be me. And to like learn core truths about the world through the stories. And when I talk about the hero's journey model in that book, I'm talking about the idea that there's stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things uh, to make the world better. And when people hear that story, it, you know, the reason that the hero's journey has been so resonant is it get it activates people to sort of be uh, pro-social and to do things within their, within their tribe that makes the, the, the whole group stronger. And so. Thinking about that model, I guess, is, is maybe thinking about telling stories really with that audience first perspective of asking ourselves, what stories need to be told so that audiences feel agency and that audiences feel that they can make sense of their world and actually do something about it, right? That they actually, we're telling stories that create better citizens wanting to do more to heal society at a time of like terrible bifurcation and terrible, um, you know, violence of ideas. And if we think about it in that way and look at each story as an opportunity to create an empathetic connection and teach a core truth about the world to people, I think that you actually can tap into tons of ancient story templates that have, that have worked and worked because they, they teach core truths and something like a good verse, just a good guy versus a bad guy story, or a story that just makes someone outraged or a story that just titillates because it's just so awful. These are not stories that really teach anybody anything. And so um, even though they tend to travel and they tend to work, the other stories that tend to travel and work are when people 
hear a story as an illustration of a resonant truth, something that they say, yes, that's what I always believed, but didn't know how to say that travels too. that's viral as well. And so tapping a little bit more into that virality, um, you know, what Joseph Campbell said, just Campbell said that when we hear these ancient myths, it's more like we're remembering them than hearing them for the first time. And I always love stories that kind of do that. Like how do we tap into people's wisdom as opposed to tapping into their, their fear, anger, or, you know, panic. And so that's not necessarily, if, if you open yourself up to say like, well, what timeless truth do I want to teach now on with this story? Or do I want to share with the story or matters to me? Um, for each of those timeless truths, there are many story templates that you can go and look and, and, and look for stories that sort of play those templates out in, in, in modern life. So that's where I guess I would, I would really start is not sort of like, how do I just tap into a, a te- template I've used a million times before, but you know, what kind of person do I hope my audience will be after hearing this story? And then how do I activate that kind of person to the way the story is told? I really like what you said about something that you always knew to be true but didn't sort of weren't aware of that aspect of revelation from a story i think immensely powerful now the the golden age thinking is is really rife in news media which is you know things were much better in the past and they're wretched now and and Mm -hmm. they're going to be even worse in the future that that's 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 not that kind of thinking isn't unique to to news is it no, of course not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we're just entering a profoundly uncertain time. And I think the only way to really counter that kind of thinking, you know, that, that thinking is marshalling a lot of evidence about the threats that, that are the existential threats humanity is facing that, that are only growing. But I think the only way uh, to... Uh, hang on, Jonah, you said yep. they're only growing. Can I challenge you? Know, how do we know that the threat, existential threats for humanity are growing? I mean... Everyone accepts it, but I'm not sure yeah. it's true. You know, if you look at the, I, I think you're raising a valid point for sure. There's a ton of literature about how, by some measures, poverty is going down, life expectancy is going up, availability of food is going up. There's even some indications that population growth is slowing. So there's like, there are certain things that can be read as, as, as positive, positive trends for the future. And at the same time, people who study sort of risk to humanity as a species are constantly reporting that we are, we are increasing risk factors quicker than we're coming up with solutions. I don't necessarily think that everything is going bad in the world, but I do think something like, you know, the fact that we're seeing climate change faster than we expected to, and we are not reducing our emissions still, um, is a, is an exist- is, is essentially an existential threat to humanity. I think that the way that technology is being deployed with, you know, with basically no control on it is, is a existential threat to humanity that's growing, but. I do think that we can't just say, well, here's all, here's the way things are going. That means they will just keep going in this same direction. And so the, the past was good, the present sucks and the future's going to be even worse because this is the direction of travel right now. It's not really how history or, or technology actually works. You know, things, emergent phenomena happen and things change course. And so I don't think we know what the future will be. I don't think that the, the future of news media is is destined to just be further and further kind of atomization and falsity. I just think that we are in a moment right now where, where there's a renegotiation happening and things have to be figured out and there's not a template for how to move forward. And there's, there, there is no going back to the past. And so that's kind of a scary, frightening moment. Yeah. So, and what about you personally? Are you um, following your own advice in unsafe thinking? Are you, are you moving towards the fear? What are you, what are you, what are you up to? Yeah, I, um, 
currently working with a friend of mine who is a co-founder of a, of a software company, Asana, and you know also a former Facebook guy who's named Justin Rosenstein, who is creating a um, social venture to look at new technologies for for economics and and digital democracy. And we're looking at some of these root causes. I've been studying a lot of these root causes for for the last year and a half, trying to figure out like what kind of interventions need to happen to allow for sort of off ramps to the to the current systems that seem to be driving in the wrong direction. So it's a huge, ambitious project that Justin's put, you know, a, a, a large commitment to it. So it's exciting to think that like we can do some exciting and big experiments, which definitely creates a lot of fear that I've been trying to move into, move toward because <laughs> So ambitious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you if you review the historical documents or you look back at documentaries from the 70s or whatever, you know, people had existential fears then very much around, you know, atomic war and so forth. Prior to that, you know, disease might have featured heavily in people's fears. And even before that, there's there was religious belief about the end of the world. Is there something fundamentally different about now? Yeah, I mean, I thought about this a lot. I, I think that there's a, I think it's pretty good evidence that every generation has believed or wanted to believe that it was the last generation, right? Like, I think there's something just in human beings that want to believe that, that the, the apocalypse is always just around the corner. And maybe that's just our, kind of a fear of our own death that makes us think like, well, perhaps really once we're gone, everything's going to be gone. And that makes us feel more comfortable in a way. And then, you know, of course, I think what happened in the 1950s I think there, that there have been moments where civilizations have collapsed and, and, and people's lives, seemingly the whole world collapsed around, you know, a pocket, a, a pocket of, of planet Earth, a pocket of humanity where everything they knew was gone. But I think in the 1950s with the proliferation, the first proliferation of nuclear weapons, there was a sudden sense that like we had a global humanity and that we would live or die together. And, you know, all the Einstein and Jung and all the folks at the time were all sort of like saying this is the first time that humanity really can destroy itself. Um, and so I do think that we are sort of still, you know, I, I think that at the time in, in the early 1980s, I, I read that there were the people closest to, to the actual triggers on the nuclear weapons, the people who were running the doomsday machines, they basically took it as sort of inevitability that, that, that it was going to happen. And the people that the, the public couldn't really know how bad it was. And they saw really no way out. And they said it was just sort of shocking and amazing that we made it through that time. And they probably would have given a pretty bad estimation of the, of the possibility. And we did make it through that time. Although of course we weren't, you know, we're not safe, safe forever from nuclear weapons, but we have overcome some pretty terrible odds in the past. So I do think like we're at this moment of just intense acceleration where the, the problems are accelerating faster uh, than they have before. And I do think that, you know, I do think that resource tightening around climate change is going to further exacerbate kind of uh, hostilities and, and dangers. But I also think that, yeah, our ability to generate solutions is accelerating faster than ever mm. before, too. It's just like the most important time ever, <laughs> in a sense, that we can kind of get together and... Um, try to work on these things is it's so urgent. A friend uh, and colleague named Holton Karnofsky, who works at uh, Open Philanthropy, runs Open Philanthropy, has been writing a series about called The Most Important Century and about why this could be the most cons consequential century for humanity. And I kind of think that that's, that makes a lot of sense to me that we're sort of setting the mm. course right now for mm. the next couple years. And, and given that we're all in this together, how important is that source of shared truth to you and, and, and your solution thinking? 
I think that it's one of the most important things right now that we could solve is if we can have people willing to to give up the idea of every piece of information being ideological and coming back to a sense that truth is real and is possible and that we, we can share a sense of truth and then argue over what it means would be an enormous piece of the solution if we could get there. Although it's very hard to imagine once we, once you get to a place where that's not the case. I think it used to be the case that different, different civilizations or different tribes would not share, have a shared sense of truth, but people interacting day to day would all share basic truths with each other. And, um, to be in a moment, you know, that post-truth moment, I think smarter people than I will figure out how to, <laughs> how to put that cat back in the bag. Thanks to Jonah for the interview. It is so much fun to be able to talk to the world's leading thinkers. Our podcast is a wonderful excuse to get a conversation going. So thanks also to you listeners for letting that happen. I'd love you to get in contact with suggestions of people you want to hear on Crawford Media. One note that wasn't explained in this interview, Jonah referred to Unsafe Thinking, which is his second book. It came out in 2018 and is also highly recommended. Thanks as always to Kevin McLeod for the podcast music. I contacted Kevin to come on the podcast and talk about news music in general, but he must be a busy man because I haven't heard back from him. I'll keep you informed. Bye for now.